I'm perfect. Welcome to the Significant Strike Podcast. We got a beautiful card coming up this weekend, UFC 262. I'm your host, Soft Weekly, and with me as always is our expert handicapper, Val Duar. Val, how's it going tonight, buddy? Well, it's going good tonight, but it didn't go so well for us last week. No, that's why. recap yeah, that, as well as the bad. <laughs> that's why I played the little intro with the car crash. Yeah. So it started off bad on Friday when uh, Rumble Apache Mix won in our Bellator parlay, but Patricky Pitbull, or Shitbull as he's known by some, as a lesser Pitbull brother, he was winning uh, 2-0, at least on my scorecards, in his fight against Peter Queely, but then uh, took an elbow to when he was in top control late round two to the top of his head. Um and in between rounds, they stopped it, even though the blood wasn't in his eye, even though he was up 2-0, doctor stoppage. So even though he was coasting to a decision win, uh TKO win for Peter Creeley, that lost his .5 units. Um, then uh, the UFC card. So first off, we had two cancellations. Ryan Benoit, my, probably my favorite play, canceled um, because his weight cut was horrible and he could barely walk to the stage for the uh, weigh-ins. Hill, by decision, we had... Canceled. Amanda Hibas got COVID. Then the plays that did happen. Klein, uh, inside the distance, lost for half a unit, lost as that went to the decision. And then I added mid, uh, before the fight, the odds went down from like 260 to 208, minus 208. So I put some money, I put a unit on Klein money line at minus 208. And he lost the decision, surprisingly, as I thought he won 29-28. We, we were very surprised at that one. Um, and, uh, Kyle Dacus, just uh, he wasn't the level I thought he was, and Phil Hawes was a better level than I thought he was. Or well, at least he's definitely improved his cardio since last time. Uh, that was minus one unit, and then Diego Ferreira, which I still love. Like if they were to fight again tomorrow, and I could be assured that Diego Ferreira had a good weight cut, I would play this again just as much, if not more, units. But um, I mean, he missed weight. I read afterwards that his coach said. He, uh, Safe Sayud said he just, the weight just wasn't coming off. Like when they went to cut the water weight, he just wasn't sweating. Um, and he, he had a bad weight cut. He gassed in a fight, which I've never seen him do. He won the first round with some really fun scrambles. He rocked, uh, Gillespie in the striking, but he didn't follow up on it. And then in the second round, he just gassed and got TKO'd on the ground. So that was minus two units for a total of minus, what was it? I forgot to come. Okay. Two, three, five units, minus five, five units on the week. So we're still at a total of plus five point something, 5.215 or two, five, one, two, one, two, five, two, something, five point something units overall. Let's just go with that. Right. I got to say two, eight, one units after five weeks. I got to say 14, 14 and one record. That was a huge ouch for us, but, uh, we had two cancellations that could have improved our score. The, uh, the shitbull fight, I was very upset about that because the blood wasn't in his eyes and he wasn't, he wasn't compromised, uh, 
um, you know, in his ability at all, it was just a, a nasty bleeding cut, but it wasn't bleeding into his eyes. And like you said, he was ahead 2-1 on that scorecard. He he could have fought. Yeah. He, yeah, 2 nil. He could have fought that last round. That's the way it goes. We'll take our lumps. Uh, Fajera was winning the first round handily, but, uh, he was noticeably gassed in the second. I was, I was surprised how, how quick his tank ran out in the second. It was like 30 seconds into the second round and he yeah. was done. I mean, we saw him on the scale and he looked drained and he still missed weight. So that wasn't a good sign, but I, I mean, I still held out hope because we had already made the bet. It's too late, but we, we make these bets before, uh, we see them weigh in. Which usually weigh-ins don't tell you that much, or really don't usually tell you anything. But sometimes things go wrong, so and that's it, that. And w- yeah, we'll take the good with the bad. We got hit last week. Uh, those other two fights, w- we would have still been in the loss column even w- if we had won those other two fights. So you know, let's not make excuses. We had a bad go this week, but let's jump right into two sixty-two. Yeah. All right, so we've had noticeably long shows, so I'm switching it up this week. I mean, this is a pay-per-view card. There's a lot of fights, so we're I'm only doing the ones that I feel have value or are just interesting enough to warrant discussion about. So the, we're skipping, I think, over four fights, five fights on this card. And, yeah, it's just an effort to make the show run more smoothly. And some of them we just say – some of them I just say stuff, and it, it really doesn't matter because I don't have a play on it, and it's not an interesting enough fight to discuss. So we're going to start at the bottom of the card. Gina Mazzani versus Priscilla Cachuera. So Priscilla Cachuera might be the worst fighter on this roster, but hear me out. <laughs> she has power, like especially for a flyweight, a woman's flyweight. She has some serious power. But she swings wildly with no technique. Um, often she, when like she's at kicking range more, she only throws single punches. Um, but she only combos, throws punches in combos when she gets in close and starts to brawl. And when she comes in, she gets, she comes in forward aggressively and recklessly, but she is tough enough to take it. That's why all of her UFC losses three so far. She's one in three in the UFC have been decisions. And I mean, you look at who she's fought. She fought Valentina Shevchenko in her UFC debut. Which is just like, what? And then Molly McCann, who's pretty good. Luana Carolina, who's not that good, um, but decent. So she got a win. But then in her most recent fight, early 2020, she knocked out Shana Dobson, who holds the record for biggest, uh, odds upset in UFC history on Maria Agapova last year. Um, uh, she was like a plus 800, plus 900 underdog. I, I had a like point one unit on that. Um, she, uh, she knocked her out with an uppercut in round one, 40 seconds in. So it just shows she, ha- she has kind of fuck you power for, uh, a woman's flyweight. Um, from bottom, she's not that great. I mean, she has some VJJ skills as everyone does, but she's not particularly good from bottom. She has mediocre takedown defense, but like again, she has fought really high level competition in her first two UFC fights at least. Um, so there's really not much to say about her. She's not technical. She's not great grappling. She just swings wildly and with power. Um, she comes into this one as a plus 185 underdog. Uh, but Gina Mazzani, she's not great either. I think, what is it? She's two and four, two and five in the UFC. If we count her, uh, exhibition bout on the Ultimate Fighter season 18 against Juliana Pena. And some of those wins are to, to good opponents. I mean, Sarah McMahon's okay. Lena Landsberg. Eh, Julia Avila, that's not a bad loss. Juliana Pena, I mean, she's fighting for the title at Bantamweight, which this will also, uh, 
only BG is on his second fight at bantamweight after fighting her whole career at her sorry second f- fight at flyweight after fighting her whole career at bantamweight um but if we look at her record so Dinozani is 7 and 4 those 7 wins 1 2 3 4 5 of them came outside of the UFC mostly in Alaska and uh Canada regional oh circuit. very very regional if you're talking about Alaska and Canada yeah. Yeah, she grew up in Alaska, so it makes sense. But um and then won a K- KOTC in early 2021 in between a stint of UFC fights, which she lost all of. But, I mean, losses to Macy Kiasson and Julia Avila aren't horrible. But then you look at how she lost. Um Macy Kiasson was 149 into the fight from punches. Uh, Julia Avila, knee to the body and punches 22 seconds into the first round. And then, uh, Sarah McMahon, she lost a minute and 14 into the fight with, uh, an arm triangle choke. So she lost three of her four, we'll say four because I'm not going to include the ultimate fighter, C19 decision loss because technically it's an exhibition. Three of her four UFC losses are by being finished, two of them by punches, which punches that's obviously Priscilla Cachoeira's, uh, forte, shall we say. Um, but so Gina Mazzani, in terms of technique, she's a southpaw. She's awkward, but enthusiastic in her striking. Like she goes forward awkwardly, but she, she goes forward. Um, she's not that powerful. And that's because she throws mostly with her shoulders. I mean, it's a flaw you see in a lot of these lower level, uh, women's MMA fighters, especially at flyweight, which is the weakest women's division by, well, I mean, unless we count featherweight, but featherweight's not a real division. Um, but yeah, she, she's not throwing with her hips and her legs or, you know, her body and legs. She's only throwing with her shoulders. Uh, she doesn't have any real sense of timing, like counter timing, uh, choosing the time to strike. Really, she just kind of throws this stuff out there. Only really ones and twos. Um, she likes to dart in and throw that two in an open stance matchup, which is most frequent matchups for her because she's a southpaw. She does hit the body at times. It's just something you don't see that much in women's MMA. Um, and she likes to end combos with a low kick, which is probably the thing I like, like the best part of her game is that ending combos with a low kick. And her chin ob- isn't great, obviously, as she's been knocked out in the first round twice. Um, she has a decent clinch game, but that's not really, she doesn't really put the fight, fight there. She gets put there and tries to get out of it. So I don't think this fight will go there. She may try to take Priscilla Cachoeira there. Uh, down, I mean, sorry, but she doesn't have great takedowns, but Priscilla has, like I said, mediocre takedown offense, so we'll see how that goes there. Her only UFC wins, I already said her losses, her only wins are against Rachel Ostovich, who, I mean, I don't want to be a dick, and th- so this is going to sound kind of <laughs> no, mean, but she, she's Rachel Ostovich, <laughs> she, she worse, I mean, she was only in the UFC because she was hot, like, and mainly because she had big tits. I'm just, that that's just the facts. That's just what you see. She had a four and five record going into that fight and got caught after that fight, four and six now. And she started, I think she's one of these girls like Jessica I and Paige Van Zandt that started. And that's who fans. I was going to see is Paige Van Zandt. That's yeah. what it is. So, so, but I mean, Paige had skills there for a while. They faded. Rachel Ostovich was never good. And so, yeah, that's her last win. Before that, her only other win in the UFC was in 2017 against Yanan Wu, who's meh, like just about the same level as Gina, which is like the lowest level at bantamweight. Rachel Ostovich was the lowest of the lowest level, like not UFC level or even close at flyweight. 
which is a weaker division than Bantamweight. Um, yeah, so not much breakdown here because neither of them are very technical at all. Um, because we have the ability to get Priscilla Cachuera as a plus 185 underdog, which you can see that on Bet Online right now. 180 in a couple of places, 175. Um, uh, yeah, we're taking Priscilla Cachuera for half a unit here. We're just, I'm just saying Mazzani's not that good. Cachuera's not that good either, but she has power. And when there's no technique and you're swinging wildly, that power sometimes shines through like it did for Cachuera versus Shana Dobson last year. So yeah, half unit for Priscilla Cachuera there at plus win 85 odds. I, I like that one. Uh, for all the reasons you mentioned is, uh, this fight isn't going to be super technical, so when you put it, you know, when you have that in mind, the one that's that's got the real punching power, you know, it, it you got one that's got real punching power and one that uh, has a suspect chin. Yeah, you know, so yeah. I, I like this bet here. It's yeah. a, I mean, I, I think Mazzani is rightfully the favorite. It's just too much of a favorite for two fighters that aren't good, you know. And in yeah. women's fights without, you know, that much technique, it's often a good idea to take, like, to say dog or pass. And I'm going with the dog here. Yeah. So moving forward, we're going to end up with Andrea Lee, Andrea KGB Lee versus Antonina Shevchenko. Obviously, Valentina Shevchenko's sister. Um, but this is a situation like Pitbull and Shitbull, I mean, except for that, at least for Tricky Pitbull, like, is decent. He's just shit compared to his pound-for-pound pound best fighter in Bellator brother. Uh, Antonina Shevchenko really is not good, and I look to fade her. No, I would uh, never say this anywhere. Times. I would never say this as a comparison anywhere else, but she's no Patriki. Patriki at least has some yeah. credibility on his own. Yeah, yeah. As far as... uh siblings in MMA go there couldn't be a wider gap than Valentina maybe the most talented women's martial artist mixed martial artist of all time and Antonina who has okay Muay Thai I mean she decent Muay Thai relatively decent Muay Thai but it doesn't translate as much to MMA um her wins are okay I mean every time she's fought an actual good fighter Roxanne Modafferi and Caitlin Chukagian she's lost um, that Roxanne Montefiore decision was split, though I, I have no clue why. It was clear as day. I mean, it could have been 30. The only question was 29-28 Montefiore or 30-27 Montefiore. Though it was fought in Russia. It was actually the first women's martial, mixed martial arts fight in the U, UFC history in Russia. And they were, as you can expect, heavily cheering for Shevchenko. So maybe that's why it was split. Uh, just saying. Um, <clears throat> but... Yeah, so both of these chicks have lost to Roxy Montefiore, so they're not allowed to be top flyweights. Like, that's the rule. Um, Lee gives up two inches in height, but has 1.5 inches in reach on Antonina. Uh, this will be an open stance matchup because Antonina is his health paw. And one thing to look out for is Lee's inside leg kicks. She throws a lot of them. Almost one quarter of her strikes are leg kicks. Um, and one good thing about her in this matchup, as Antonina's known weakness is wrestling, uh, Lee has a 20.6% control rate throughout her fights. She averages three takedowns landed per fight. Um, she isn't super special as a fighter. I mean, she's mid, mid tier in the flyweight division. She's what ranked in the, she's ranked in the 15, even after, uh, a run of three losses. She's the 12th best female flyweight in the rankings. Um, uh, sorry, 11th. 
Um, but she, she can't, she's well-rounded. She's solid. She can strike and wrestle. Um, her three losses are to all ranked opposition and pretty good opposition at that. Jojo Calderwood, who my second favorite woman's fighter. I love Jojo. Um, decision loss. Lauren Murphy, who is campaigning for a title fight against Valentina, which she probably deserves. Split decision loss. And then most recently, unanimous decision loss to good old Roxy Mataferi. Um, but, uh, her wins, Montana De La Rosa, Ashley Evan Smith, Veronica Macedo, not great, but I mean, good enough. As uh, Montana De La Rosa was a good win. She out wrestled the wrestler and outstruck her heavily everywhere, dominating that fight 30 to 27. I mean, she wasn't close to finishing it, but it was, you know, a traditional flyweight domination where one person clearly wins 30 to 27. Um, but yeah, so I'd say she's probably not as good of a striker as Antonina, although that's simplifying it a bit. She's a much better boxer than Antonina, but isn't as good of a kicker, especially up high. I mean, her low kicks are better, but Antonina has good Muay Thai, decent Muay Thai. But she's a much, much better wrestler. Despite being short, she has a long reach. And I don't know why I wrote this down. This was, this was a stupid note. I'm just cut that out or just ignore that um so and uh, uh kgb lee's best attribute in striking probably is her stiff jab it's it's really good get takes full advantage of her 69.5 inch reach which is long for the division and for her height it's so strong that it wobbled opponents including the aforementioned montana de la rosa she has an unusually squared stance which i i feel like brings her hips forward a little more or her back foot her her uh rear hip forward a little more so she can uh use leg kicks like her legs are the usual muay thai stance but just her body is a bit twisted forward her hips are a bit twisted forward so that she's facing almost directly forward at times i like her footwork a lot she reminds me of gilterian and its methodicalness i I don't know if that's a word um but yeah she just kind of stalks forward with her hands up uh in that you really the same type of guard that peter yon uses curved hands right around your forehead um her head movement is actually really great um stemming from her short rhythm where she's you know bobbing side to side slightly she can pull back for punches duck under stick and uh stick and move dart through them pass them to the other side um Ducks under punches with these, the whole shebang. Her volume is pretty low in striking. I mean, relatively to some women who go out there and just swing away. Um, she's often one and done. I mean, more than, more than I would like and just pumping out that jab a lot sometimes, which I like the jab. I just wish she would add something to it. Like she sometimes misses opportunities to counter after she dodges a punch. Sometimes misses opportunities to add that second punch in when the jab, uh, lands really well. She works the body. I said this about Mizani, which she occasionally works the body, but, uh, Lee actually works the body really well, like a traditional boxer. I mean, you can tell she has boxing experience. Um, which again is something not a lot of women's MMA fighters do. She has a decent clinch knees of her own, um, and could land trips from the clinch, which could be great versus Antonina as Antonina always wants to get in the clinch with the double collar tie. And she's great in the double collar tie, uh, with her own knees. Um, that's really her best attribute is, is knees from the clinch, but she can be taken down from the clinch. And when she looks for it, seeks out the clinch and then gets taken down from it. It just presents more opportunities for her opponents to take her down. Um, 
So there's one fact that should be noted about this card, the whole card, but it particularly pertains to this fight, is it, Texas still is under the old unified rules. We're fighting in Houston, Texas here. The old unified rules, which if you guys have seen seen fights like Caitlin Vieira versus Yana Kunitskaya, you know that just being on top in the new unified rules doesn't score. Takedowns themselves don't score. It's what you do with those takedowns. But Texas is in the old rules. We still have takedowns and just being on top, scoring points. So that favors Andre here as the one who has wrestling. Um, so even if it's, it's a slight thing, I mean, but if she gets her down, there will be a better chance of her scoring points from just that takedown. She does have a solid top game though. Powerful ground and pound her as far as wrestling goes. Ground and pound is her best attribute. Um, she avoids submissions from the bottom, like arm bars when they're there. Um, and she, yeah, she especially like posturing up and raining it down hard on her opponents when she's able to. Uh, like she's a pretty devastating puncher in terms of ground and pound. I, I didn't go over what she does on the bottom because Antonina won't try to, t- or her takedown defense because Antonina isn't going to be trying to take her down. Um, but yeah, Antonina, I said a couple times she has good enough Muay Thai and that her double, double collar tie is good. She looks a bit stiff with her arms when she's striking. I mean, when she's boxing in general, when she's blocking punches, uh, everything, she's much better with her knees and, uh, and feet, legs. For just in general, for her kicks. Um, in terms of boxing, she does, she throws the usual ones and twos, but without much intensity or power. Like she's just going through the rhythms, just like Mazani, she throws them from the shoulders, almost maybe a little bit more with her hips, but definitely not with her legs. You know, st- stretching out to that furthest point, hitting your opponent at the farthest point away you can reach, and then following through as well. Um, which, yeah, she doesn't follow through. She returns her punches, her pistols right to their chambers. Her jab and her straight are a bit awkward in their motion too. They kind of twist or curve before getting to their target, taking speed and strength off of them. There are times when she hits a good punch with the straight left, but it's not when the opponents are square to each other. It's when she gets her lead foot outside of her, uh, orthodox striking opponent's outside foot and that, then can fire the straight left down the middle. I mean, that's what you're always trying to do in open stance matchups. You're fighting for position of the outer foot, but when she gets that, yeah, her straight left, that's when it looked good. Other than that, not so much. Um, she had a lot of trouble with Roxanne Modafieri's jab and her awkward forward pressure striking where she just rushes forward, doesn't care about getting hit, and just swings wildly. I mean, Roxy isn't known as much of a striker. So there is, a, like, there's two ways I can look at that, which is just she just had trouble with the chaos that Roxanne brought to that. Or, I mean, if she did that bad against Roxanne's wild striking about just how much trouble she could have with Andrea Lee's jab and her crisp clean boxing. Um unlikely her reach is actually shorter than her height, but her long legs and varied kicks are what give her an edge against a lot of opponents. Um she has good teep kicks, uh both to damage and just push kicks to keep range but you know throw her opponents back. Um and her open stance matchups allowed her to throw powerful roundhouse body kicks. Um, I'd expect more leg kicks with her Muay Thai, but she only throws uh, kick, uh, leg kicks about 10% of her strikes overall in the UFC. So yeah, wrestling, I've alluded to it several times, but that's her main weakness. She was even taken down twice on Dana White's Contender Series. 
to a can that they threw in there to give her an easy UFC contract, as they do with prospects they like. Um, and she was like a minus eleven hundred favorite, and it lasted to the second round. And yeah, she got taken down twice in the first round. She reversed the first one, and then the girl got up from bottom. But in the second one, she got control and ground and pound a little bit until the end of the round. After almost knocking out the girl, I mean, the girl was really, really on the ropes, like rocked, visibly shook, and she still was able to take Antonina down. Um. She can't be dangerous to fail takedowns on with if you don't know what to do in the, t- in the, in the uh, collar tie because you, you don't want to end up in that collar tie. But she can also just be push- controlled against the fence because of her do- desire to hold that collar tie. There was one fight, oh, I forget which fight it was that I watched, but she just, she wanted to hold on to the collar tie so bad where that she didn't give it up for a good half minute while she was just getting uh, controlled against the fence and getting pummeled to the body. Instead of digging for underhooks, she just kept holding onto that neck uh, before she actually was like, all right, I guess I'll try to get out of this instead of just holding on hope that she'll let go and I can knee her in the face. Um, her long legs do help her a bit in takedown defense and getting up from bottom position, like with someone like, like someone like Izzy, but she's actually more like Kevin Holland. She could use them better. Her wrestling fundamentals just aren't there. Uh, I mean, she has a bit more than Kevin Holland, who really has no wrestling fundamentals. She she pushes the head down. Uh, sometimes she goes for the wizard or overhooks, but she doesn't combine it all to, to stop from being taken down. She really just tries to back away, use her long legs to stay up, get back up with brute strength. Um, she's okay in scrambles, much better in scrambles than she is uh, in wrestling fundamentals. I attribute that to... Uh, more of a jujitsu background than a wrestling background. She's gotten top position in scrambles at times, but almost always loses it against higher level fighters. Um, and in top, when she is in top position, she can be swept with ease. So uh, Lee here comes in as an underdog, which I love because I love the opportunity to fade Antonina Shevchenko against actual good fighters. So I have two bets here. Um, because I like Lee enough to put 1.5 units down and Lee always wins by decision. Uh, Antonina oh, always loses by decision. Uh, like Lee, all three of Lee's wins in the UFC by decision, all, both of Antonina's losses in the UFC by decision. So I'm going, but just in case, I'm going one unit on Lee's money line at plus 105 and then a half a unit added on for Lee by decision at last I looked, it was plus 175 odds. Let's see if these can change relatively quickly, especially for, uh, big cards, pay-per-views like this one. So here we go. Lee by decision. Yep. Plus 175, uh, in a couple places, high plus 165, plus 168 in a couple places. Uh, take that where you can get it all day. So that's a total of 1.5 units on Andrea Lee. I, I just have, uh, a couple add-ons to what you said. Uh, um, I like Lee's jab. Like you said, it, it, it's a nice stiff jab and she's got some power in it that, um, will make her opponents take notice. And, um, I think that works even better when you're a shorter person with a longer reach. You know, I think that that yeah. jab that jab is much sneakier when you're shorter and you can still get that jab in. And she has the uh, she has the short rhythm, the side to side that we talk about a lot between that that and the the long rhythm. So I I think that's going to be the difference maker in this fight. I yeah. really do. That I mean, that's going to be the difference maker in the striking. But I, I and it, 
if it's a striking match, it'll be relatively close. I mean, you'd still look at a dog in that situation, especially one with those skills. But the wrestling is really just the icing on the cake for me to take the underdog here and fade Antonina in general. Um, but all right, moving on with, uh, to Andre Muniz versus Ronaldo Jacare Souza. <clears throat> Jacare, a legend. Yeah, a true legend, which is why this is, this is which is why I'm going to say what I'm going to say, which is this isn't a fight about skills as far as people talking about it, the betting line, all that. This is a fight about narratives. The narrative is that Jacare is totally washed. Why else would he be at even odds versus a guy who has no striking and only one good quote unquote win in the UFC, which came after being controlled for two minutes? Um, and he got the submission in that fight versus a guy who's very well known to be susceptible to BJJ and submission. Jacare, in his last three fights, has lost to Jack Hermanson and Jan Blachowicz by decision, and then, uh, Kevin Holland, uh, which we know how that went down. Uh, he was knocked out from bottom position while being distracted by Kevin Holland talking to him. That, that loss has really the one that's shaken people's confidence in him. But those aren't three bad losses if you look at them in a, in a vacuum. It's the age and the scenario of the Holland knockout where he got knocked out suddenly, unexpl- uh, almost unexplainably from bottom, um, that people say, oh, he's done. He's dust. His chin is shot. He's not a jock anymore. I mean, he can't even be competing with these top guys. But I mean, Hermanson was the, when he lost to Hermanson, Hermanson was the hot new thing at middleweight. Jan Blachowicz is now the champ at light heavyweight. And he, he ate some of Leon's best shots and took him to a split decision. And then Kevin Holland, who is, was the hot new thing at middleweight and chaos happened. You get knocked out. I mean, yes, he's 41. So I understand why people are saying that, but we've seen Jacare in there with elite fighters, even in the last, just the last two years. So is it really that long of a time to go from the split decision with Jan, which is closer than even Izzy could get to being, well, originally he was a dog and now even with what amounts to a nobody in Andre Muniz. Even if I'm wrong, I'm going against this narrative that Jacare is done, that he's over, that his chin is totally shot. I do think he's past it, you know, obviously at the age of 41, but not as much as everyone thinks. I think he gives a hard fight to almost everyone in the lower half of the middleweight division, which is a weaker division, and everyone outside of the top 15, especially if they aren't good strikers. That's what makes this so much, one so much easier. I don't have to worry about how chinny uh, Jock is at this age. Because Muniz isn't a good striker. He's he's not a striker at all. He's like Demi Amaya. He has some striking just to supplement his BJJ when he's not on the ground. Um, yeah, it, it's much easier take the guy who doesn't who is chinny perhaps when his opponent doesn't have skills to take advantage of that newfound weakness. But since skills are involved in the actual fight, if not as much the odds and the narrative around it, I believe we've got to discuss the skills. So. Muniz is an awkward striker. He has a bit of power in his short hooks, but not much else. And that's really all he throws. He sometimes throws punches half-heartedly, and I don't know why. Just, like, throws them, then thinks better of it, pulls them back. Um, and he he doesn't follow through anyway on his punches to begin with. He really just throws short hooks and a, the occasional body kick. He might be a chinny himself. He got wobbled versus uh Arroyo. I forget his first name. Antonio Arroyo? Um, sorry. Yeah, he got wobbled by Antonio Arroyo, who's... An- as well in this division um at, from not really a big punch at all um he, you know he kind of went down almost onto a knee got back up was a bit wobbly uh and went got a takedown 
which that's what he wants to do. He always wants to get to the ground and use his high level BJJ. He got a first, a first round sub on Dana White's contender series after getting knocked down. Um, his first round sub to Fabinski was, I mean, notable, which it shows what he's about there because he didn't mind getting taken out. He let himself get taken down really and decided to work from the bottom. I mean, he'll pull guard out in the open because that's how much he wants to be on the bottom. He did that several times in the Antonio Arroyo fight, which made it really dull to watch because Arroyo wouldn't, couldn't decide if he wanted to go in or make him stand up. He would just stand there and, and kind of tap on his leg, hold his foot. So the referee didn't, didn't make him get up for some reason, but the, I, I digress. He almost uh, got a guillotine on Fabinski, but Fabinski popped out. But then seconds later, he locked up a triangle, grabbed the arm as Fabinski tried to deal with the legs, and then it tapped immediately to the armbar because it was in. I mean, it was an impressive show of BJJ, but Fabinski is known to be susceptible to BJJ. Um, so yeah, his he is undefeated in the UFC. I mean, I have to say that one and zero in the Contender Series, two and zero in the UFC. Um, but the Fabinski fight was the only really good one. His fight with Antonio Arroyo was really boring. Um, yeah, like I said, he just kept laying down his guard. They had a couple of straight exchanges, but not much. I mean, neither looked that great. Arroyo clearly had him outclassed in the striking, but wasn't able to take much advantage of it because of poor fight IQ. Um, and yeah. That's his striking. Uh, he has powerful takedowns, trips, single, double legs, and good entries with his charging in, throwing hooks. Um, he's great at top control, flowing from position to position, and can attempt submissions from almost everywhere. 13 of his 20 pro wins are by submission. He, he does use ground and pound when needed, but he's not an expert at it. The only thing I'd critique about his uh, BJ, uh, BJJ is hunting for the submission too much, you know, over the position. He'll lose positions because he's going for a submission, which is like the number one rule, position over submission. So, yeah, on to Jacare. I mean, he's 41 year, years old, but in his, people say his chin is shot, but he's survived some real power in Jan Blachowicz. Um, he's a grappling legend, one of the best to ever do it. And I think I saw a thing last week or this week about how Moody's looked up to him just like Kevin Holland did. He has all the jujitsu knowledge that one can have as well as a good amount of judo and wrestling. If this was Jacques versus a good striker, I'd be thinking about the striker maybe, but Jacques could outmatch him in the grappling or at, at least nullify it. And that's where Muniz wants to be. And Jacques, unlike Muniz, has good striking. He has power in his punches. He still has all the tools that he used earlier in his career when he was a strike force champion and a UFC, uh, a high, high level contender at middleweight. I mean, Jock, he still uses his low kick, his overhands, his hooks, his straights, his high kicks. Those things are what kept him a top contender until very, very recently. I haven't seen anything from the Royal that makes me believe he could defend the, against the striking of Jacare. So it was, uh, I, and so is that's why I think like if you look at them, their last Jacare's last fight, he was even or a slight favorite against Kevin Holland. Now he's a slight favorite against a guy who has literally no striking. Uh, before that, he was plus one forty when he moved up the division to face Jan Blachowicz, who. Uh, would get, I think it was one more fight and then the title shot for him. Maybe the title shot was in his next fight. Can't remember, but fighting a guy who was close to the title at light heavyweight upper division, but went split decision as a plus 140 underdog. And now you're telling me he's minus 110 versus Andre Muniz. Um, it's clear, like the choice is clear here. I'm, I'm going with Shakare. And I debated this one for a bit because I mean, there is a chance that Jacques is totally shot, but I, I don't think so. It's all, we've only seen three minutes 
I mean, even in the three minutes of the Kevin Holland fight, he took him down twice, controlled him, got distracted by trash talk, got knocked out. He he didn't look bad other than the getting knocked out, which, yeah, looks bad, but that's one knockout. You know, you look at, just look at all of his fights. His last knockout before that was Robert Whitaker in tw- 2017. I mean, he lost a split decision to Gastelum, who also has crazy power, even though he's a chubbed up welterweight. The Blahovich, who legendary Polish power. I mean, that that was his last knockout. And then before that, to go find a knockout, you have to go to Dream 6 Middleweight Grand Prix 2008 finals against Gegard Mousasi in his second pro loss. So he's only been knocked out three times in his career. Uh, yeah, like, I, I and this guy, you know, like, they were Gegard Mousasi, Kevin Holland, and Robert Whitaker. This guy, Andre Muniz, I, I, I really can't see it. And if it goes to the ground, which it surely will at some point, I mean, that's the thing, Jacare, if, uh, or when Muniz pulls guard, Jacare can go into it and do fine on his own there, or just make him stand up and destroy him in striking, I feel like. So I'm going, I debated a bit between one unit and 1.5 units. I wouldn't go, I, I like Jacare in this fight a lot, but it is a bit of a risk because it's a crossroads fight for him. Um, but I'm, I'm going 1.5 units on Jacare at minus 110 odds. Earlier, we could have got him at plus 100, but not anymore, sadly. Yeah, um, the odds right now, I'm looking at him. Uh, Sosa's minus 115 and Mooney's is uh, minus Ooh. 105 on five dimes. So, you know, Actually, both, yeah, both of them are, are, are coming in at the negative money, you know, but, uh, most of your analysis is what I agree with. The striking, there's no comparison. And I remember when, uh, Jacques Ray came to the UFC, you know, he, and it, it wouldn't have mattered if he came to the UFC or not, but I mean, he's a grappling legend. So I just don't think there's enough opportunity for Mooney's to, to do anything on the ground. I think Jack Ray will be able to handle himself on the ground and on the feet. There's no comparison. So I, I, yeah. I like this bet. I mean, he's, he is 41, so that's the only reason I'm not making it. It's like right. a three or that, four, a two or three unit bet, but, uh, it, it, skill for skill. I like Jacare and I don't see the proof that he's totally washed. But as looking at the odds, I found, so there is plus 101 on Pinnacle, which as I said before on here, I don't have, but I do have sports bet and the odds there are minus 102. So yeah, we're going with that. Jacare. Yeah, I got sports bet at 102 one, here too. Yep. Uh, one, 1.5 units to win whatever that is. Pinnacle has Mooney's as a plus 100 now. <laughs> you know, so evens, but yeah. Oh, shoot. So they're rating I, I was, I, I was totally looking at yep. Mooney's, not Jacare. Uh, my bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stick with that. So, okay. The best we have here for Jacare is, is, um, 115. 112 yeah, yeah. on yeah. DraftKings. You can get him 112 on DraftKings. Uh, a lot of you are lucky for that. I, oh no, 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 he's 112 on sports bet also. Okay, okay, it's decided. Minus 112 sports bet. All right, moving on to an interesting one. Uh, Grundy versus Lando Vanada. The battle of, I mean, when I think of this in my mind, I think, when I think of Lando, I can't help but think Lando from Star Wars. And when I think Grundy, I think Solomon Grundy. That's from what Batman. I was, I was gonna break, uh, stop you for a second and go, if your last name's Grundy, your nickname's gotta be Solomon. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so this is an interesting one. I mean, Lando's well known despite having a very much a losing record in the UFC. I mean, let me count it up real quick. One, two, three, four, five losses. 
three wins and two draws in the UFC. So three, five, and two. Those two draws, I thought he honestly lost both of them to Bobby Green and Matt Frevola. But he, because his first fight was against Tony Ferguson and it was a fight of the night and that's what he's most known for, he has gotten good fights since then. I mean, like high level, relatively high level fights. His second fight was John McDessie, which, I mean, that up to stock even more. He won with a wheel kick in round one. It was spectacular. But then after that, lost to David Tamor, who is very much underrated, I have to say. Uh, split draw with Bobby Green. Unanimous loss to Closa. Uh, majority draw to Frivola. Um, one versus Kimura against Marcos Mariano, the lowest opponent, lowest level opponent he's faced in his career. Uh, unanimous decision loss versus Diakesi. Diakis, I always forget how to say his name. Mark Diakesi. Um, win versus Yancey Medeiros. A good, pretty good win. I mean, even at this point in Yancey's career. And then, uh, most recently, a couple of months ago, unanimous decision loss to Bobby Green. So, uh, and then, sorry, and then on the other side, we have Mike Grundy, who he's only two fights into his UFC career. He won with punches in the first one and then lost the NFC decision to the second one where he admittedly got dominated, but this is against a highly, highly touted prospect in Mosfari Evluiv, now ranked in the top 15 at Featherweight, and uh, he, has, he has a new fight book. He's fighting, oh yeah, he's fighting Min Hakim Dawodu. That's a really good up, fight upcoming. But yeah, I mean, they basically fed him to Mosfari Evluiv as saying, all right, big this kid up, and then move him on to the ranking. So, But Grundy is good in his own right. He works with Darren Tills camp in Liverpool with Tills and guys like Terry Adam. Uh, he has, he's mostly a wrestling guy, a wrestling and submission artist, especially in his pre-UFC days, but he's greatly improved his striking to be pretty good now in the UFC. He has fast hands, good variety of punches, and good entries, quick entries set up by his long rhythm and frequent jab feints. He also has a strong overhead right, like a lot of wrestlers that we talk about. You always bring up Hendo, rightly so, yeah. um, and it really comes at you quick. He's also a decent enough counter-striker. Um, he, I like how he sets up his takedowns by convincing his opponent he's going to strike and then just shoots. But sometimes he does shoot without any setup, and I'm like, why are you doing this? Um, he's good at entering on the double and switching to the single. He looks for reactive takedowns as well, and he's good at getting his strikes on the clinch break. So in his debut, this Nadner Mani fight, which is more the level we're talking about, low, a lower level than Lando, admittedly, but more the level we're talking about when we're talking about Lando versus Grundy. Uh, Nadner Mani anticipated a lot more wrestling, but Grundy only shot three times in that fight, and Grundy was able to win the first round without striking against the striker. The second round was more even. Each of them wobbled the other in that round, but Grundy stayed on his feet, showing a decent chin. His opponent got overeager, and Grundy hit him with a powerful left hook around the guard, right in the temple, and sat him down. Naramani got back up, but couldn't get anything going. He retreated until he was cornered against the fence and eating punches, and the referee stepped in to save him, mercifully. Um, and then, like I said, he was fed to Mosfar Evloev, who really dominated him for 15 hard minutes. Um, but overall, I like Grundy's improved striking. Uh, his wrestling has always been a high level. He has a lot of submissions on his record. Um, and he's working with a high level, high level camp. So most of this comes to Venata and what we're going to see from him, which is, uh, like Antina, a known weakness to wrestling. He's an electric striker. And like, like I said, he went hard for, I mean, he went with seven minutes with Tony 
and hurt Tony. I mean, he, he, I think legitimately knocked Tony down, which the UFC is stingy in giving out knockdowns as a stat, but I think they gave that, that out as a legit knockdown. Um, I mean, Tony was, I think, seven fights into his win streak there. He was ranked third. He ended this is the first round as a five, uh, as a plus 500 underdog. He seriously hurt Tony. I mean, as much as you can hurt Tony. Um, he stands like he's Wonder Boy with his hands low and a blade, pretty bladed stance at times. Uh, though he'll switch his stance all around, he seems hittable, but he moves really weird. So it's harder than it seems at first to hit him. But one problem or his, his biggest problem is his cardio is gone after that first round. He's electric for that first round, but his cardio is gone and his movement slows. So he becomes much more hittable. He's shown to be weak to wrestling. Like he's not, not, doesn't quite have Kevin Holland syndrome as numbers MMA, uh, dubbed it, but he's gone 0, 4, and 2 when people try and take him down. That's that. Um, brought to you by Numbers MMA. Um, unlike Kevin Holland, he wasn't controlled for all of those fights, though. Some of those, he, uh, he really wasn't controlled. Like, he was just taken down and then got back up. He's shown good skills in scrambles, and sometimes uh, he grabs onto that guillotine, which can be a problem, as he's never finished someone with it. You can use it as a reversal, uh, a way to sweep, and though I, which I've seen that from him. Um, a lot of what he does in striking, like I said, is weird. All of it is weird. I mean, a lot of sidekicks where it looks like he's like not really gonna kick and then just it darts out there. Some kicks where it looks like he's off balance and then just steps in. This bizarre style was really the perfect foil for Tony, and it's why that fight went the way it did and became a fight of the night in his UFC debut and the ninth fight of his career coming out of I think it was like Rocky Mountain Regional or some uh some bizarre uh nowhere. Yeah, Rocky Mountain Rubicon two was his last fight before the UFC. It goes from that to fighting Tony Ferguson. Um, but yeah, that's why the fight went the way it did. He, cause he keeps his hands low, like below his waist. He relies entirely on head movement and counter jabs to stop his opponents from hitting him. Um, which he flicks out those jabs almost lazily, but they work. I mean, if you can stop the opponent from coming in, they can't hit you. I mean, unless they can reach around it or get that you know, at the same time. He bobs and weaves a lot. He's mainly southpaw, but he switches a lot. And it can be all over the place, throwing punches as he's shifting, like Tony, throwing punches from a totally horizontal stance like Wing Chun. Um, he has a tendency to throw leg kicks with no setup that can leave him open to counters or being taken down off them. Um as does the fact that he does his best work when really when he's advancing. I mean, he can be counter-strike, but he does his best work when he's coming at you, so he can be counter-struck. He lives his chin straight up in the air, but has never actually been knocked out. His only uh, finish loss is the Tony, who, although Tony hurt him in that fight, it took a darts to finish him. Uh, darts, which Tony just grabbed as Lando duck, uh, kind of bobbed and weave in front of him, ducked in front of him, locked up that darts as Tony does. As the fight goes longer, his volume slows and his footwork leaves him more and more in hittable range because of his cardio failing, fading, uh, it t- and that tests his chin more and more. Low kicks can hurt him as his, and slow down as his leg is off out there to be hit because of his bladed, frequently bladed stance. Not always bladed, but frequently. Um, uh, Mark DeCasey did that to him to win two rounds and wrestled him in the third easily, I might add, to ice the decision. Um, like in that, like, I'll take that fight as a microcosm, but his significant strikes are very high in the first, but then always much lower. In, in that first round, he was competitive with DeCasey, 25 strikes. I think DeCasey had low 30s. 32 or something. Um, and then he had nine and 11 in the second and third, respectively, whereas Dan Casey just took over from there on. So I, I, I like Mando. I mean, he's electric. He's fun to watch, 
But if Grundy gets out of the first round or and and can use his wrestling on him, I think this should be Grundy's to win. Um, Grundy's a slight, slight favorite going into this one. I mean, he's Lando's like even money at plus 100, plus 105. Grundy's plus 120, he's got him to plus 125 at places now. Um, but yeah, I bet, I bet Grundy at, uh, minus 120 for 0.6 units to win half a unit. That's my play. All right. I like that one. Solomon Grundy. I like that one. All right. All uh, right. What do we got next on the card? Cause like we said, people were skipping over some of the lesser fights tonight. So our show doesn't run too long for everybody. So yeah. Or some bloods where I just don't have an edge. Like I think Jamie Pickett versus Jordan Wright will be a real fun fight, but they're both young. I don't know much about them both coming off a loss. It'll be interesting to see how they back, bounce back from their first UFC loss. It'll um, give a, it'll give us info for uh, yeah, making yeah, exactly making a bet next time they fight. Yep, it's it's, it's, fun, it's a fun fight, but it's on the prelims. Uh, and I don't, yeah, I don't have an edge on it. So yeah, so we're going to the main card. I'm skipping to Kagan versus Araujo on the main card. I'm just gonna say that right now, even though I'll discuss some fights on the main card that. I won't bet on. I won't, uh, yeah, they're much more exciting to me. It's, it's that simple. So this is our replacement fight after first Leon Edwards versus Nate Diaz got, got moved to UFC 263 and then, uh, Edmund Shabazian versus Jack Hermanson got moved to the fight night next week. So this was supposed to be on the prelims now on the main card, but it's a good one again between two ranked flyweights. Uh, Monterey versus Schnell. Um, Rogerio Monterey versus Matt Schnell, that is. Um, Monterey is mainly a BJJ guy, but he's not just that. He has power in his hands, especially for the flyweight division. Although his striking technique is flawed as he sometimes charges in looping punches recklessly, and his striking defense is atrocious at only 53%, but Schnell 68%. Like, I mean, you should be trying to get at least 60%, 65% striking defense if, like, you're looking at stats. 53% is really bad, especially when he's landing around um, 45%. So his opponents are actually outstriking him. His opponents land at 47% accuracy, and he lands at 45%. And he gets outlanded by 0.6 strikes per minute. But he has great BJJ, was his BJJ state and national champ back in Brazil. Um, he catches kicks often to sit opponents down. That's one way he can get Schnell down. He gets into dominant positions from scrambles often. In his last fight, um, which was a relatively big one, he controlled Kai Kara France for the whole first round. I was on his back like a backpack, but Kai got him off at the end of round one and then, bam, put him down with one big punch. Uh, it was a questionable stoppage for a few reasons, but like, just another herb beam questionable stoppage really, but it is what it is. He took, didn't take that punch that well. Um, though it was great how he was on his backpack. He was a backpack on his back the whole round. He still wasn't able to submit Kai Kara France there. Um, so Matt Schnell, he's a smart fighter. He point fought Nam, Tyson Nam, who's a huge puncher. Um, but he can also hit hard himself at times. He just fought that way because he was fighting a much more powerful puncher. Um, he wobbled Alejandro Pantoja, but then eventually Pantoja, uh, knocked him out in return. He showed good counter striking there, but Pantoja is just too good. He's like a top four, uh, five flyweight in the world. He had back to back triangles, um, before that Pantoja fight against Smoka and Espinosa, who are, you know, top I think Smolka's ranked. I don't think Espinosa is anymore, but they're top 20 flyweights in the UFC. Um, he, he had back-to-back triangles, the leg variety versus Smolka and Espinosa. His guard is a very dangerous place. He has, he has good BJJ, but not really to the point of once and he doesn't make it a point 
to to use it as much as Bontrim. Like he doesn't shoot takedowns that often. He shoots one and a half takedowns per 15 minutes and only lands, I think, half a takedown per 15 minutes. So he's more than willing to go there and play BJJ with you, but he's not going to try to put you there himself. Uh, I guess he prefers to strike. Um, I think his BJJ is at a level where it can uh, not entirely neutralize Bontorans, but I think he can keep himself from getting submitted and probably keep himself from getting controlled dominantly. So that is an his advantage uh, in, stylistically in this fight. And then I think he can outstrike Bontoran. He's a clean, sharp striker on the front and back foot. Throws a lot of straight punches, which, as the saying goes, straight punches beat looping punches. And like I said, Bontoran throws looping punches. And Schnell just hits faster than, hits harder and faster. Well, not necessarily harder, but faster than Bontorin. His punches come in faster. Um, and he outlands his opponents by 0.85 strikes per minute, whereas Bontorin gets outlanded, like I said. Um, Schnell should win this fight, I think, but the odds, which have gone up, I might have bet him down at like 140, minus 140, but Schnell's now, let's see what we, yeah, so Schnell's now up at minus 160, minus 170. I would probably, Put Schnell myself at like a minus one eighty odds, so there's not enough of an edge, uh, you know, twenty cents edge there at best to warrant me betting on him in an official capacity for this fight. So on to the next, which should be. I I mean, I didn't go in order that the main card is in. I I like the Montreal Schnell fight, but I put it first, even though it's third or fourth on the main card because I wanted to do these in the order they should be done in. Barboza versus Burgos, two fighters who are constantly in bangers, open up open up the main card here for us, which the UFC likes to do. They put fights there that they think are going to be, you know, all-out wars, get people to tune in, make them happy they paid their money for the card. Um, yeah, so- because uh, Barboza is another legend. If you've been watching the sport, he's been around for years. Oh, yeah. I mean, in his resume, I mean, look, not looking at wins or losses right now, just the guys he's fought before his last fight against Makwan Amir Khani was a, kind of a layup. Yeah, Dan Ige, Paul Felder, Justin Gagey, Dan Hooker, Kevin Lee, Khabib Nurmagomedov, Neil Daryush, Gilbert Melendez, Anthony Pettis, Tony Ferguson, Paul Felder. Right, that's a who's who of the division. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's an insanely good amount of uh, lightweights and one featherweight because he moved down to featherweight right before that Dan Ige fight, which he gave a really, really good account of himself in. I mean, Dan Ige is now fighting up into the top five against the Korean Zombie. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I scored the fight for Ige, but there is, I see how people could have scored it and why it was a split decision, uh, could have scored it for Edson. So... We're going to start with Shane Burgos. He obviously hasn't fought that same high caliber of fighters. The last year, he had a fight of the year candidate with Josh Emmett. He beat Cub Swanson in a decision the year before that. And the year before that, lost his first, uh, took his first loss to Calvin Cater. Uh, yeah, but so Shane Burgos is all about going forward, pressuring you and getting into wars. I mean, even when he's getting beat up for three rounds, like against Josh Emmett, he has amazing cardio and toughness. He loves to stand in the phone booth and trade, trusting his power and his chin to win him the fight. He, he's a really is a true warrior. I love to watch him fight. He has good use of leg kicks. He has been shown to be hittable by higher level strikers like Emmett and Cater, but he does have a good chin and in general defends his head well with a high elbow guard when he steps into range. Although sometimes he just gets too excited and doesn't defend himself, but that's, that's the brawler's curse. Uh, he uses head movement well to slip and rip and throw pull counters. Um, when his opponents charge in, he frames and pushes off if he doesn't, if he isn't ready to engage or doesn't want to get caught up in a clinch. 
He uses head fades a lot to set up his jab and begin combos, but making his opponent think it's coming, coming is coming. Oh, it's not coming, and then it comes. Uh, works the body at times, uses his jab really well, and it's sharp and powerful. Times out both outside and inside leg kicks off of that jab as a combo really well, which I love. Um, leg kicks versus Edson will be important to take away Edson Barbosa's best weapons, those legs that can do so many things. Um, uh, Shane Burgos talked recently before the Emmett fight about adding the front kick to his arsenal. We saw it a bit, but not to great effect. So don't know what to say about that. It could be an interesting weapon if he uses it right though. Um, this is a cool stat by at numbers MMA on Twitter. He has the fourth most significant strikes landed per minute in UFC history, not just featherweight history, history period, slightly above Max Holloway. He has 7.31. I believe Max Holloway has 7.28 strikes landed per minute um he has 46 percent strike accuracy and 62 percent defense which is reasonably good he absorbs 6.5 distance strikes per minute yeah uh that josh emmett fight actually let's go over uh edson's numbers edson has 43 percent accuracy and 65 percent defense so very similar but he throws a lot less. I mean, not many people are, th- are throwing, I think, what, shoot, what is it? He throws like 17, 15, 16, 17 strikes per minute and lands, uh, 7.3 of them. Uh, Shane Burgos does. It's just that his cardio and his brawler nature that allow him to do that. Um, but in that Josh Emmett fight, Emmett was able to continuously land huge shots on Shane, most of which Shane ate, but one notable one he did it was an overhand left, a switch up from Emmett's usual power right hands showed Shane's big vulnerability, which is that he gets less defensively responsible when he's feeling himself and he thinks he's walking his opponent down. He's on the front foot there on the back foot. And he's just having fun landing blows. He's com- he's always confident, overconfident sometimes that he can get his hands back or move his head in time to defend himself, but clearly sometimes he can't. No one really can be that perfect. But even in that sequence, he never looked fully dazed, like he never looked like he was in trouble. He got into full guard immediately when Emmett jumped on top of him and stifled Emmett's ground and pound. Um, as far as grappling goes, which there shouldn't be much in that fight, these guys both fight 95% from distance throughout their careers, but he has great takedown defense. I mean, he stuffed Josh Emmett, when, who was a D1 wrestler, when uh, Josh Emmett tried to wrestle him and didn't let him settle in top position, even when he got knocked down, like I said. His, his get-ups are great. He gets his feet on the hips and pushes off quickly. Sometimes he'll throw up arm bars and triangles from the bottom. Um, both fighters' last win was Makwan Amir Khani, so I'm going to compare their performances a little bit. Um, Schimberg was just out cardioed Amir Khani. I mean, it was close in the first round, but he, he wins by accumulation of damage. He beat Amir Khani badly up. Ugh. He beat up Amir Khani badly to the body. Amir Khani became gassed as hell in round two, late round two. He defended almost every takedown in round two after getting taken down a bit in round one while doing all the damage. Um, and then everyone around three defended as Amir Khani was totally gassed and almost, and f- did finish him. Sorry, forgot. Did finish him in what would have been a 10-8 probably if he didn't finish him. He did so much damage to the body that Amir Khani could barely stand up, uh, after Burgos let him stand up because he wanted to get back to standing instead of being in top control when Amir Khani was laying on his back after, uh, knockdowns or a couple failed takedowns he attempted. Um, so, but it wasn't like totally dominant. Amir Khani arguably won the first round. Edson, he won that whole fight. I mean, 30-27. He did good work to the body with a, also with the shovel right hand where they're at close range, was really focused on not letting Amir Khani catch his kicks. 
take him down so he didn't get into extended battles or throw that many catchable kicks. He would set them up when he did throw kicks. Um, he, he knocked him accounting down around two with a lunging straight right, which he stepped through with his right foot as he threw it with his hips behind it to generate maximum force set up by fainting the jab against the Mirakani's hand trap of the left hand. So he came across with the straight right. Um, uh, the same punch got him down a second time, but with no setup that time. Uh, it just, it was, it was a striking domination from start to finish and to never let Amir Khani fully wrestle him. Um, versus Dan Ige in his featherweight debut, he had a lot of trouble at first with Dan Ige's pressure punching style, which is the same that Shane Burgos uses, obviously, although Shane isn't the same level as Dan Ige. He got, uh, lit up by Danny Ige in the first 30 seconds of round one, but then before, you know, coming into his own, countering him and knocked, uh, Ike down early to perhaps steal that first round. Um, as Dan set a high guard over his face and right in front of his face and Edson went around it with consecutive hooks. Um, Edson, one interesting, uh, interesting stat from Numbers MMA is that he has the eighth most knockdowns in UFC history. I mean, he's not a super power puncher, but his kicks are legendary. And it'll sit you down with a variety of them from spinning wheel kicks to hook kicks to the body, every, anything and everything. Edson Barbosa uses it. He has the most diverse kicking game in MMA. And while he may not have power in his hands, they're not to be underestimated. He mix up, his mixes up his punches very well. And he is able to land big blows with them, if not knockdown power worthy. He uses his elbows as well, too, because his bodies work. He's usually a counter striker, so he will slide into that role in this fight with Burgos as Burgos tries to pressure him and will try to counter strike. But he doesn't like being pressured. He likes having the room to counter strike cleanly, you know? So there's a couple ways in which this fight could go badly for either of them. I mean, Burgos could get wild and get hit with a liver kick or something or kick to the head. But... Also, Edson could just get crowded and, and dominated by, uh, excuse me, Shane Burgos pressuring him and making it a, a, a brawl and bloody war. Um, he hasn't thrown his wild spinning head kicks and stuff like that in his last few fights. He really just sticks to leg kicks and roundhouses and teeps to the body. Um, don't know why he's quite gone away from it. I mean, I get why against the rest of like Amir Khani, but not against others. Um, he has a tendency against pressure fighters that punch hard, like Burgos and Ige, to duck and cover and then wait to counter after, meaning he can, you can beat him up if you don't overextend yourself in combinations, hit a combo, three or four punches, and with a leg kick and reset. But, but Burgos doesn't really like to do that. He's not gonna fight. I mean, he's not, I'm not saying Burgos is dumb, but he likes to fight a war. He, he's gonna see red at points and get caught away, get caught wailing away on Edson Barbosa. But his chin is solid. I mean, it's probably around the same level or above the level that Danny Ige's at. I mean, Danny Ige's faced, he, they faced, both faced high level punchers, the only one to ever knock out. Um, I mean, the same man knocked him out, Calvin Cater. I believe he could take the counters as well as uh, Dan did, if not better. Um, we'll see. I mean, Shane ate punches from Josh Emmett in his last fight, and a lot of them, uh, like, he got brutalized in that fight. So maybe his uh, chin's improved since that cater loss. We'll see. Um, Ensign will put in work on his body and legs from the outside, though, but Burgos was able to walk through that against Emmett. So this could be his fight to lose. It's just... I see a very strong scenario where he does lose it by getting a bit reckless and Barboza sniping him. This should really should be the fight of the night. Um, and I, and I, like I said, I, I think it's, uh, Burgess's fight to lose. 
but he could lose it. So with that being said, I wouldn't put money on Burgos at the current line, which is hovering around minus 140, uh, minus 135 range. Earlier it was at minus 130. And I, I mean, I had to think about it there, but the edge just wasn't enough really. Though, like I said, I, I, if you could bet on fight of the night or just performance bonuses in general, I was, I would put money down on that being one with a fight of the night or just someone getting performance of the night at least. So you got a lean here, but nothing you're willing yeah. to put your money on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I lean, uh, Burgos in a three round war, but all right. So. Tony versus ben- Tony Ferguson versus Benil Daryush. Love Daryush and Ferguson. I'm not a fan of. Plus, he's crazy. <laughs> so it's this is such this. So this is another one really about narratives when people are discussing it. Um, this time though, I don't reject that narrative. I think there's a very high chance that Tony could get controlled again, like he did versus Charles Oliveira. Benil mixes wrestling and BJJ better than almost anyone in mixed martial arts. He was able to control Carlos Diego Fajada, the not cast version, like we saw last weekend for a good portion of their fight. And CDF is definitely a better off his back than Tony is. Although Tony's good off his back, he, he, plays around in weird ways that he's from 10th planet which is good but it's different than traditional bjj um tony is dangerous on the feet and Benilla is hittable but tony isn't what he was and that's the narrative that's being discussed you know tony is 37 coming off of two losses to two of the top three lightweights in the world so it's rough out there for him i mean Benilla isn't Oliveira or uh Ferguson, but he's up there. Um, and but part of and, gotten, but yeah. and part of the narrative is is uh his life outside of the ring has been let's say questionable too. You know, it's not just that he had a couple losses and he's getting old. Like there's no, I mean of, he's yeah. crazy, but he's left. I mean he said he was only doing like six hours of jujitsu a week or something before that fight with Charles Oliveira. He's ditched. Um, why am I blanking? You, you know the name. Um, Eddie Bravo. He's ditched Eddie Bravo. Um, he's fighting. He's uh training with Freddie Roach now at GSP, so that could be good for him. But I, I don't know how much jujitsu he's training, which is going to be really important in this fight. But yeah, Tony is still dangerous on the feet. I already said that. <laughs> um, so I was gonna bet Benil at the old odds of minus one thirty, but they've risen insanely, which sucks yeah, for I'm me. Yeah, seeing one fifty five. Really, one fifty five. I saw one eighty this oh, morning. Oh, for Darush, yeah, yeah. Darush is one seventy five. You can get him at now. Yeah. So Benil Darush, I would have been on him at one minus one thirty for a unit, but the odds are probably about appropriate right now. Like, people are going to say, oh, Tony is the play as a dog, and he is dangerous, like I said, but I really do think he is past it. I mean, he's 37, and his whole thing was relying on his natural athleticism to get away with doing all the reckless things he did. I think he still has a chin, but he's not as fast as he was. He's not as strong as he was. He can't get away with his craziness that much anymore. I mean, I think Benil is the fourth best fighter he's ever fought after Gate G, Oliveira, and RDA when RDA was right, which is back that's in the not, day. That's nothing sad to be behind those people no, which, if you're fourth uh, I'm best. Saying, <laughs> I'm saying that on Tony's 12-fight win streak, Benil would have been the second best fighter. He, I mean, I don't want to take anything away from Tony's 12-fight win streak. It was legendary, and it was against the best at lightweight at the time, but lightweight's a lot, lot better now. I yeah. mean, Gate G, Oliveira, Poirier... Uh, Connor, I mean, Connor, he was 
kind of around, but not really at the time. And he, he, he was off doing his own bullshit. And he cheated horribly against my boy Josh Thompson. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I said, he relies on way too much on athleticism to be what he was now that he's 37. I still think he would have lost to Gaethje and Oliveira potentially in his prime, but probably not Benil, but because he has a striking advantage against Benil. But now he's past it. Um, the cardio is interesting in this as Daryush isn't amazing in terms of cardio and Tony has been. But is he still, I mean, Oliveira seemed to have more in the tank at the end of their fight than Tony did. Although Tony was able to take getting beat up for 25 minutes versus Justin Gagey. I'm he, willing to he bet. He wasn't doing as much offense as he usually is. I'm was. willing to bet if you train, uh, if you trade in, uh, Tony Bravo for Roach, which are both great coaches, but I would say, um, that's gonna deplete your cardio some. I think you would be better with Bravo for cardio. I think you're yeah. gonna get more, more physical. Uh, that's just my opinion. I think BJJ will give you better cardio than boxing. I understand that, especially for this fight. I mean, that's the kind of cardio that Tony needs for this fight where Benil Dayush is going to try and control him on the ground, you know, like he did to, I mean, Benil will go into this knowing he has the better jujitsu, um, and that Tony probably has more dangerous striking, but and Benil has been hittable. I mean, we saw, was it two fights ago against Jokar Closa? Closa had him hurt, but then Benil came storming back and knocked him out in one of the best moments of 2020. So like he is hittable, but he's usually able to dig deep and dig it and pull through. Um, even when he gets hit a lot, right. uh, and, and Benil isn't the cleanest striker, you know, but he is effective at what he does. I mean, he has spinning back fist knockout last time out. And before that chased, uh, closer across the ring and knocked him out with an overhand left at when he was already hurt. Right. So he has been effective despite being a bit, a we, bit less than technical. So we don't, we don't get, need to get too much into this fight analysis because the numbers have moved so much that it's probably yeah. not effective for us anymore. Um, do you have a lean on it? I mean, I mean, I think Daryush is going to win. I do as terms, well. But the odds are up there. Like, Tony still is one of the greatest lightweights of all time, however you look at it. Like, top 10 at worst. I have him probably around fifth best lightweight of all time after the, the greats like um, like BJ Penn, well, I mean, could be BJ Penn, Dustin Poirier, maybe behind it, Eddie and RB, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, that, he's, that, he's I, had I digress. A, he's had a storied career. He's not, he's not my favorite, yeah. but I can't take away from what he's done. He's had a storied career. Yeah. And there was a time when he was one of the top two lightweights in the world, but he's not that. I mean, 2017, he, when he was in his prime, he was so dangerous. I mean, so, so dangerous, but he's had so many injuries. And they're also contributing, along with age, to his decline of his athleticism and, and all that. I mean, uh, we can go into some stats. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I lean Daryush by decision because Tony, it's really, really yeah, hard just, to finish Tony. I see your stats up on the board. You can throw those out. We don't need to go into the whole analysis, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, if you ask me for a lean, I'll say Daryush by decision if you want to play. I mean, we can check that decision prop. I'm not going to play it because... Daryush wins by decision is plus 140 and Tony is too dangerous. And I mean, Benil's such a high level of BJJ, he can submit him, even if I don't think he can knock Tony out or even really probably not even TKO him, you know? Uh, but yeah. So Tony has 60% defense. He's a wild man. Daryush 64% defense. They have the exact same accuracy, 44%. But Tony attempts 14.6 strikes. 
So he outlands his opponents by 1.83. Benil attempts 11.4 strikes per minute and outlands by 0.86. Both pretty good. But Tony, this was interesting to me, is that Tony has 0.4% KD, although he gets knocked down less than that. Dariush, on the other hand, has 1.3% KD. When I'm saying KD, that's knockdowns. That's uh, Numbers MMA's own personal knockdown ratio, which is related to distance striking instead of just total striking time. And that's a pretty wide gap. Yeah, it it is. I mean, it shows Benil has... Tony isn't usually knocking people down. He's destroying them by accumulating damage along on them. And then, I mean, look at Anthony Pettis. He was so bloody after that fight. Um, uh, look at, I mean, or you can look at all the ones where you hurt guys and then darts them, the darts night. But, um, Tony's grappling is hard to quantify because he's really weird with it. So I didn't even bother writing down his stats. Like he'll lay on his back. Um, he doesn't, he's a D1 All-American wrestler, but he doesn't really bring it out that much. Um, uh, but Daryush, he attempts 6.2 takedown attempts per 15 minutes, has about 30% accuracy, 33% accuracy. So he's landing about two takedowns per fight and his control rate in the UFC is 40%. That's, I mean, four out of 10 minutes in a fight, he's controlling his opponents. That's, re- that's really good. And so our Charles Oliveira obviously did that last time to Tony, but he old Daryush has a high high potential to do the same thing to control him and Tony's not Tony is good with the rubber guard and all that but Benil's Benil was too savvy to get like totally reversed or submitted by Diego Fajera I don't think Tony's going to be able to do anything to Benil I used to is something to watch out for I mean Tony off his back people thought he could beat Khabib because of how good he was off his back I think there's better I think that was a bit overstated but he is still good off his back with his all right we're we're an hour and 20 minutes into this so let's wow, get let's yeah. get to the main event because i got some the stuff to say about this one too event. this is i mean this is it's a great fight let's just say that to start um michael chandler has solid power pace and speed for about two rounds and then he gasses a bit i mean not entirely like he's not gassed out but he says all right i'm gonna rest so he wrestles his opponents, usually against the cage in the third, so he can rest and rejuvenate for the later rounds. And sometimes he does it in the later rounds too, like in the fourth or fifth, if he needs a break for a minute or two. And this is every third round, like without fail in all of his fights. Um, and I have to give a shout out to both Fab Napkin and Jack Slack on this one. Fab Napkin's a guy going from, no, from Discord and Jack Slack is a popular, very notable MMA, uh, Jack analyst. Slack can analyze striking better than anyone. Yeah. So, yeah, but Chandler is always on the front foot, pushing his opponents to the cage and making them circle. They can hit him if they change directions, pick good angles and strike, but most have trouble with being on the back foot. Some, like Patricio Pitbull in Chandler's last loss, refuse to back up. But you can't just not back up unless you're throwing strikes and throwing with power and making him respect, which Pitbull did, and knock Charles out in a minute and a couple seconds. Um, I'm unsure how Charles will, Oliveira will deal with that as he also likes to be on the front foot, pushing his opponents back to the fence with his wild Muay Thai so he can get the body lock takedown. And when I say wild, I don't mean bad, like no technique. I mean wild that he throws. Here, I have a list of some techniques I've seen Charles Oliveira throw, um, to push people back. Jumping switch knee, jumping front kick, or jumping front switch kick or a crane kick, which uses the body and the head. Spinning back fist, spinning wheel kick, and a fake, fake spinning back fist to a regular back fist. So, just, yeah, he uses a lot of techniques to push you back against the fence so you can get the body lock takedown or just keep striking with you. I mean, he used to always go for that body lock, but now he's more and more willing to strike with people. He knocked out 
uh, Jared Gordon with, I mean, like, like straight up knockout, no TKO on the ground, straight up knocked out Jared Gordon with an overhand right. Uh, uh, that was a year and a half ago now for his second knockout in the UFC. Um, and, and his first one was the one right before that. So he's much more willing to strike now that he's developed this high level Muay Thai. But, um, sorry, back to, back to Michael Chandler. Um, because he charges forward so aggressive. Well, so my point was, I'm just unsure who will see the back foot. It was the same thing with Peter Jan versus Aljamain Sterling, which initially Jan seeded the back foot to Aljo's high pace, but obviously as the fight turned, uh, Aljo was forced to give it up back to Jan, who's just relentless going forward, relentless with his footwork and his pace. Um, but yeah, so because he charges forward so aggressively and has such a low stance, that's one really notable thing about Mike Chandler is his low, low boxing stance. And he bobs and wheezes in front of his opponents. He can and has been caught by knees to hurt him. I've even seen him stumble from stiff jabs as he presses forward because his charging forward just adds to that that power of whatever jab is being thrown at him. And honestly, I have this kind of vision of him bobbing and weaving in boxing range, like his nickname sake. I made that word up. Iron Mike Tyson. He's called himself Iron Mike Chandler. Um, and getting caught with a knee, maybe a jump knee, and going down. Um, because Charles does use his knees. I just it's. I'm not, it's not something I'm predicting. It's just something that I like have seen in my head as I'm watching Chandler fight and seeing him bob and weave in front of opponents. Um, his chin is questionable at times. I mean, he's gone and been in some wars for sure, but he's also been knocked out by one hard punch from a featherweight. Though I think that's a bit of an overrated narrative. Uh, because other than that, the only person to knock him out was Will Brooks, and he was he well he tapped the strikes verbally tapped the strikes in that one. He didn't know where he was really, but. And he, he has been hurt sometimes in this fight, but the only clean knockout is Patricio Pitbull two years ago. Almost to the day, two years and a day ago, he was knocked out and lost his title to the featherweight Patricio Pitbull in Bellator. Um, but his power is not questionable at all. His overhand right is devastating when it connects and can also use the left as we saw versus Dan Hooker. Um, body work will be key for him in this one with Oliveira's high guard. Like Oliveira has a traditional Muay Thai high guard. Um, and keeps it up there no matter what. So he's open to body work, but it's also up there so that his opponents will be tempted to shoot on him. And so he can get them to the ground and then use his jujitsu from there. But the main thing for Chandler is if this goes to the third round, which these guys are finishers, so I don't know that it will. He has to be very, very careful when he goes in to use that restful wrestling where he wants to take you down, hold you there and breathe, rest, recover for the entirety of the third round, or as much as a bit as he can. So Charles, he uses a classic Muay Thai stance, like I said, the high guard, lots of kicks all over at rapid pace. Um, leg kicks should do damage to the boxing-centric stance of Michael Chandler. Oliveira has a good left hook. He can use a counter Chandler's overhand right, perhaps, if he slips it and comes back with the left hook to Chandler's exposed right side. Charles often frames with one hand off the opponent's face, even like pushing their head away and then strikes with the other when it close scrappy striking exchanges. The thing is, can he get away with that, leaving his head unguarded on Michael Chandler? Overall, his boxing is a bit underrated, especially now that it's come up so far. Um, he also has greatly underestimated strength. Like in his last fight, he picked Tony up and threw him to the mat. Like he did it all over the cage throughout the fight. He was throwing Tony around like a sack of potatoes. And he can do this to any lightweight, even the heavier ones like like Dustin or Kevin Lee, who are almost welterweight size. I mean, Kevin Lee is even going up to welterweight. And Kevin Lee's last fight wasn't against Oliveira. You could almost say Oliveira chased Kevin Lee out of the division. Um, yeah, he can do this to any lightweight if he gets the body lock and wants to take him down. Um, so 
Charles's guillotine got Kevin Lee in their their fight two fights ago for Charles while being at half guard. That's how tight that guillotine is. He passed Tony's guard from full guard to side control to full mount in about half a second at one point in their fight. He is a high, high level third degree black belt. He has two of the greatest submissions of all time in the UFC, or just in general. One is a reverse calf slicer versus Eric Wisely, and one a modified Anaconda, which was voted the 2014 submission of the year versus Hatsu Hayoki. He has the most submissions in UFC history, tied for the most finishes in UFC history with Cowboy Cerrone, and Cowboy has 10 more fights than Charles. He has the most performance of the night bonuses in UFC history, second most post-fight bonuses overall, most subs in featherweight history, even though he only fought half of his career there. He has only two UFC wins that did not come by way of finish, a 93.75 finish rate, the highest in UFC history. Only Usman and Volkanovski have longer win streaks than him that are active, and they didn't have seven out of eight of them come by finish. Those are just some accolades I'm throwing out there to make you understand the greatness that Charles Oliveira has become and how high level his jiu-jitsu is. He's another one like Max Holloway and Nestin Poirier. These guys grew up under the UFC banner, fighting in it since they were 19 or 20 years old. Right. Um, and this should be a great fight. The one thing that I can't shake is uh, Michael Chandler's desire to wrestle you against the cage if he uh, gets when he gets tired in that third round every time without fail. I know he respects the jujitsu of Charles, may not respect his striking as much, but I can't ignore that when I'm looking at a bet. I lean Charles, but I think the odds are appropriate at about minus 130 for Charles Oliveira. It's it's almost a 50-50 fight, really. I mean, Chandler has the power to put him away. Oliveira has a, probably more tools to win this fight just overall, but Chandler's one main tool to win this fight is a really good one. Um, so my bet, though, because of Chandler's uh, desire to wrestle in round three, that would be a big mistake against Charles Oliveira. So I'm going with Charles Oliveira by sub in round three specifically, and I'm putting only just 0.1 units on this one because of the obvious incredible long shot it is to win. But I think there's an edge here because the first two rounds are, you know, normal likelihood for Chandler to get submitted by Oliveira, but third round has an increased likelihood because of that wrestling. So 0.1 units to win 1.6 units. I All think... Right. Uh, hold on, I, cause I yeah. have a, a couple comments on this fight. You know that, uh, when I used to write for the MMA websites and stuff, I did a lot of Bellator in specifically this weight division. And I followed Chandler for a long time and I'm just looking here now. If, I mean, he, he beat Hooker convincingly, but his, le- his win before that was Benson Henderson, who's a shell of the guy he used to be. Yeah. And then Sydney Outlaw. And then he lost to the real Pitbull, got TKO'd. He beat uh, Primus in a decision, but that's a that guy. Was a war. Right, and that's a guy he lost to earlier by a doctor stoppage. And Primus is he—he's a—he's uh, a national champion BJJ guy. He's not—he's not even a striker at all, you know. And uh, he's got a win over Gertz, who's a can. And uh, Yamaki that went to a decision. Yamauchi is really great at grappling, but right, yeah. but it went to a decision. Uh, then he got an, he got a, a split decision over Henderson again, and he beat the lesser Pitbull, and he lost. Twice to Will Brooks and uh, Eddie Alvarez. That was three fights in a row. I think there's a lot of hype when uh, guys from Bellator or other organizations come to the UFC. And Chandler, he he performed well against Hooker, but I think Charles or Oliveira is a uh, is a different level than Hooker by far. 
Definitely a different level than a hooker. Right. The one thing I do agree with you with, and uh, this is why uh, Primus had so much luck with him, is Primus didn't back up. When Chandler came in, Primus held his ground. Yeah. And so I think that'll be big, but uh, uh, like I said, I, he, he beat my boy Marston Held way back in the day. Yeah, uh, that was one of his early, that was the fifth win in his career. Right. Before he ever got the title from Eddie Alvarez and then lost it in the rematch. Right. But, uh, I'm not going to take anything away from Chandler, but, uh, I really can't believe he's getting a a title shot this early and I got to go with Oliveira here. I just, I don't see it any other way. All right. So you guys have heard me and Soft's takes on this title fight. I mean, it's a great stylistic matchup. BJJ and Muay Thai versus wrestling and boxing. Oh yeah, you know um, what else I want to mention? Uh, you know, did you do you know who uh, Chandler's last college wrestling match was against and who he lost to? I do not. Gregor Gillespie. Huh? Really? Yeah, that was his last match in college. <laughs> I, I always think of Gregor as being young, but he's just new to MMA. He's not actually that young, I guess. No, no, that was his last one. Uh, that that ended up making Chandler finish fifth in the national championship that year. Oof. Um, yeah. Well, I have just one last thing to mention, which I neglected to at the beginning, which I like to at the beginning of my breakdowns. Um, well, first, the age. Michael Chandler is four years older at 35, which is kind of on the edge. I mean, he's definitely not past his athletic, where he can be good athletically, but he's getting there. I mean, not far from the Tony realm of 37. Um, but the main thing is he's shorter, two inches shorter, and has a 2.5 reach disadvantage. Charles Oliveira has a 74-inch reach and is 5'10". Michael Chandler, 5'8", with a 71.5-inch reach. I th- um, uh, and Charles accentuates that reach with his kicks. His kicks. Make I'm glad you brought that longer. up because I think that that will be a big deal here as well because Chandler yeah. is, he's a little spark plug. He's got to get inside on you, Yeah, which will be but, harder I mean, with a, a, a Muay Thai guy. Yeah. Especially one, especially well one that's kids. a third degree black belt as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't want to, you can't rush in on a guy like that. Yeah. All right. Yep. You know what time it is now? I think we know who it is, but, uh, who let the dogs out? Walk the dog, Val. Who's your dog tonight? So I yeah, am. My dog is, uh, I mean, well, so I could go Priscilla Cachoeira. She's a bigger dog, but no, my dog is Andrea Lee. Earlier, I think I have 1.5 units on her altogether when you combine the money line and the decision prop. So, yeah, Andrea Lee walking the dog. That's that's probably um, the better one, but I'll go with Catuera because we both like those two. So I'll pick one. You pick the other. All right. All right. Um, and, and last but not least. Yeah. Time for the don't be a pussy parlay. Who you got, buddy? All right, one second. We look at this whole thing. So I've got um Jacare Souza, Matt Schnell, Benil Daryush, Michael Chandler, and Anthony. Uh, no, no, Andrea Lee. All right, I'm gonna take Cachoeira, Ooh, Grundy, Sosa, Burgos, and Daryush. Okay. Right. We only have one that matches up. Usually we have several that overlap. Right. I, 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 I kind of went a little bit different this week, so we yeah, weren't always I mean, just picking the same shit. Yeah. 
It's a big card with a lot of ways to go. Which I mean, like last week, it's a very close card. The biggest uh, betting odds are that Cachoeira fight with Gina Mazzani at minus 210 and the Giagos-Soriano fight with Giagos at minus 210 against Sean Soriano, who's making his UFC return after years away. I mean, I, I like Giagos personally as a fighter. He's he He's one of those... I mean, he's on a rough patch recently, but he's one of those guys that's always going to be unranked at lightweight, but it's still a tough fight for anyone at lightweight, right. like like David Tamer, who I mentioned earlier. And next week, we'll be making a triumphant return with a big haul after this one. We got... we got Knock on wood. Yeah, we got hit last week, but that shit happens. You know what I mean? That's why you yep, play I mean, it smart. You, uh, sometimes you get parity. Yeah, and sometimes you got to take the bad weeks with the good. It's it's not the end of the world. Yep. All right. Well, All right. We still don't have one. we still don't have outro music, people. I got to find something appropriate. But uh, we'll talk to you next week, and uh, hopefully uh, we done well. And if you bet with us, you did well as well. All right, Val. I'll talk All to right. you later, brother. Bye. Yeah. Excited for this one.